0: So today is Palm Sunday, the day when Jesus entered Jerusalem to start the last week of his life before his death. And if you've been a part of our small groups, you might know a little bit more about the last week of his life than you did before. It is the kickoff to a dramatic and action-packed week. And in some ways, it stands in sharp contrast to all that it precedes. There are celebration, there are shouts of joy, waving of palm branches and cloaks thrown into the road as a sign of honor. And if you look at the last week of Jesus, Jesus doesn't receive a lot of that after Sunday. I mean, if people are taking off their cloaks, it's to beat them with it. In fact, some of the voices that were shouting these praises and hallelujahs at Jesus on Sunday, were shouting words of anger by Friday. But for the most part, this entry into Jerusalem, which becomes a sort of uh, victorious procession, seems to be genuine. People were celebrating Jesus, though they might not have all agreed on who He was and what He was about. So today, We are going to dig into this event, which is kind of the match that lit the fire that became the city of Jerusalem by the end of the week. So, number one, uh, some questions about this Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Where was Jesus coming from when he entered Jerusalem? Now, this is a really important question because in the book of Matthew and Luke, Jesus is coming from Judea, where in the run-up to coming to Jerusalem, he blessed children He talked about uh, the rich in the kingdom of God. He told parables. He handled a request from the mother of James and John or from James and John himself, depending upon which gospel you read. He predicted his death, and he healed one or two blind men. And then he comes into the city of Jerusalem. So that's Matthew, Luke, and Mark. Now, in the book of John, Jesus had just come from raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. He then was anointed with perfume there in Bethel, and after that went to Jerusalem. Now, the first question you might have for me is, Bryce, why are the accounts different? And here is my answer for you. Different people were writing them. I mean, that's really the best explanation. Uh, for why the accounts are different. And each writer wants to um, sort of emphasize different things. And so the the Gospels are still written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God has still formed the words and the messages that we get from it, but they are coming from four different people who were writing for four different audiences. So we just have to keep that in mind that that's why these accounts are different. Now, He's coming from one of these two places. And either way you look at it, there are some good and kind of miraculous things that happened beforehand. So what does this tell us? Well, number one, it tells us that as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, he was drawing crowds with him wherever he went. He was preaching, he was teaching, he was healing. And coming off of the raising of Lazarus, or the healing of these two men who were born blind, Jesus has made a power move on his way to Jerusalem. These are two outstanding miracles that would leave an impression on anyone who saw it or heard about it. And they were impossible to ignore. And beyond that, he showed that he had great wisdom and power in speaking for God and relating to the people around him. So, as he approached Jerusalem, as if Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't need a publicist, right? There's a lot of buzz about him from the towns he's coming from, from some of the people in Jerusalem, about who he was, what he said, or what he had done. Now, he enters Jerusalem from a particular location. Uh, if you see this, this is uh, just sort of a rough sketch of the city of Jerusalem, and he's coming in from the top there. Now, this direction is actually north, so it's not north is at the top. North is uh, not at the top, I should say. It's on the left. So he's coming in from the east. He was entering Jerusalem from the east gate, and if you, you can notice here that it is the closest to what? The temple. So he's basically entering into the temple neighborhood when he arrives in Jerusalem. Uh, The main gate was on the opposite side of the city, down here at the bottom, uh, you can see. And what is right next to the main gate? Can you tell? Herod's citadel. So his place within the city of Jerusalem. So on one side, you have the temple and the glory of God. On the other side, you have a representation of man's power. And Jesus doesn't come in past the representation of man's power. He comes in from the east, where the temple is. Uh, And to give you just a little bit more perspective in terms of distance, from uh, left to right here, so from north to south, it's about three and a half miles, that direction. Uh, So what's the point? The point is that Jesus wanted to make an arrival, but he was not going through the front doors or the main entrance to the city. He was entering through a much smaller entrance next to the temple. So Jesus was not there to show the same kind of power that's represented here in the West. That's not what he is there for. He is there to represent a different kind of power altogether. He was there for the house and the people of God. Now, the timing is important as well. This week, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, was the week of the Passover. And the Passover was one of three pilgrimage festivals that all ancient Israelites who were able would would make a a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. And so, as Jesus is coming into the city, he is not the only one as if he and his followers are the only ones entering on this day. He was traveling with a lot of other people who would have been coming in from basically every direction during this week. And in Jerusalem, they would participate in festivities and ritual worship in conjunction with the services at the temple. So there were many people coming in this on these days. Now let's look at the event itself. If you have your Bibles... We are going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 19. And we're going to read the account here in verses 28 through 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So here's the premise of this story. Jesus and his followers were going to Jerusalem and making an entrance on what would be the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus had deemed it the time for him to make an entrance into the city and to make his presence felt, to declare himself, if you will. And he has all the momentum behind him for, from those who have been with him in other parts of Judea. And it's not hard to imagine that some of them were with Jesus and his party coming along with him from these other places, from Bethany, from Judea, while others may have run ahead or gone back home even just from one of those places and spread the word about Jesus coming. Now, here's something interesting about this account, which you may not have noticed before. Where does the parade happen? It happens outside of Jerusalem. It happens on the Mount of Olives. And then as he comes down the Mount of Olives towards the city of Jerusalem, this is where at least the parade that Luke describes here, this is where it happened. Now, we're not really told how it happened. How did all of these people get there? And and what was their experience with Jesus that that made them react in this way. Now, John says that the word got out that Jesus was on his way, so people went out to meet him. And again, you have to remember that people are traveling into the city from all over, and some of them, again, might have been where Jesus was. So as they come into the city, maybe they're walking in and saying, you will not believe what Jesus did. And he's coming. He's coming here. When? When is he going to get here? I don't know. Well, let's go see. Let's go see where he is. The way that Luke tells it, the celebration was started by a group of Jesus' disciples celebrating as they approached the gates, and then others around them joined into the celebration. We'll talk about this a little bit more later. Now, Jesus sent some disciples ahead of him uh, to get him the colt of a donkey. And they are a little bit concerned because they can't just walk up to someone, take the colt, and walk away. But that's essentially what Jesus is telling them to do. And he says, look, if anyone asks you about it, just tell them the Lord needs it. Good plan, Jesus. (laughs) We will get right on that. So they go in and they find the colt by the donkey, and I imagine them kind of being like, And someone stops them. Hey, what are you doing? Why are you untying the colt? Why are you taking it with you? And they say, the Lord needs it. And the other person says, nothing. We don't even know. <laughs> okay, cool. Like, <laughs> what is it? We don't even know. It's kind of a weird situation. But they did as Jesus instructed them to do, and he brought, they brought out the colt. And then they took it to Jesus, they covered the donkey, and Jesus sat on it. And this is where the crowd got involved. They spread their cloaks uh, on the ground, and they shouted. Others cut palm branches down and waved them. And no matter where the people had come from, or no matter what they knew about Jesus, this was a moment where this figure, That at this point, we would have to imagine after three years that everybody knew something about or had heard something about was coming in off of a remarkable trip. And at the very least, people want to see this guy. Now, some of the things that happen here happen to match up with prophecies from the scripture, to fulfill those prophecies. So we're going to look at two this morning. The first one is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion! Shout, daughter Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." Aha! See? This is why this had to happen this way. Now, but we need to ask the question, why is this particular prophecy important? Why does it matter within this scenario? The, the reason why it matters is not the colt and donkey part. That's simply like a, a sign. The thing that matters is When they see this happening, who is coming? It's the king. The king is returning to Jerusalem. And it describes an event where where Israel rejoices over its coming king. Now, how will they know? There are a couple of indicators here as to how they know who their king is. Number one, he will be victorious and righteous. Now, was Jesus victorious and righteous? Well, he was certainly righteous, we know, because he had not sinned, but beyond that, he had been doing the Lord's work out there in the world. He had been healing and teaching and and encouraging people with the love of God. He was the champion of God, showing everyone what God was really like. So yes, he was certainly righteous, but was he victorious? Well, we say yes, right? Right? Because Jesus has to be victorious. But would they have seen him as victorious? Well, he was not the kind of victorious that people might have been expecting. For example, he was not riding a war horse through the front gates, giving his middle finger to Rome. That wasn't happening, right? Instead he comes in on this colt, the foal of a donkey. And, and here's where we see within this one prophecy a juxtaposition, a paradox almost, that would have been hard for them to understand, because who is he? He is righteous and victorious, but he is also, did you see it? Lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt. So, what is it that they are supposed to be looking for? Well, finally, it's the giveaway is he is riding on this colt, this donkey. And when you look at how Jesus came into Jerusalem, the things, the events that passed, whether it was teaching and healing, whether it was healing a blind man, whether it was uh, raising Lazarus from the dead and being anointed. Either of those ways, he has shown his power that there is nothing that can stand between him and healing the people. So perhaps a typical king might have come into Jerusalem an entirely different way, but this, this is how you'll know it's your king. He's not even riding in on a donkey. It's the child of a donkey. Now, Jesus makes sure that these things are done so that this prophecy would be fulfilled and people could make the connection if they had eyes to see. Now, would they have seen him coming in on a colt and been like, Aha! I don't know. I, you know. I don't know if they would have made that connection. But Jesus makes it clear I want this connection to be possible. Now, the second throwback to Scripture is less of a prophecy and more of a reflection of something that the psalmist describes that matches this scene. So let's look at uh, Psalm 118, verses 15 through 27. You're going to recognize some other parts of this psalm from other parts of the Jesus story. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So this passage, like the first, sets a scene of victory and salvation. It depicts a celebration of what God has done in sending his salvation to the people of Israel. They're shouting and rejoicing. There is the waving of boughs, of of palm branches, of these different things. And, And overall, there is recognition of the goodness of God. You see, it is not about this person that is coming in. It is about what this person represents. This person represents victory on behalf of God. He is the victorious one who was rejected and turned away. He is the cornerstone that the builders have rejected. But he is also representative of decisive action on the part of God. By the time this one comes there, it is already done. God's plan is in motion and working. And they don't have to wonder about what God is doing or will he save them because salvation is already there. It is already there. And that is what this represents, this whole parade. Salvation has come. God has done it. God has done it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So those are not just words that the people are saying as Jesus rode into the city. They mean more. They mean more because of what they throw back to you. Now, back to the event itself. There were several people that were drawn into the procession, and I want us to ask and and speculate a little bit from these different groups uh, what this event might have meant to them, okay? So let's look at the different groups. Number one, there was the disciples. And they were there with Jesus and facilitating and making some of this happen. You know, they get the colt, and then they bring it back to Jesus, and they throw their cloaks over the colt of the donkey, and then they start the celebration as Jesus comes into the city. So what were they thinking while all this was happening? Well, number one, we know that they were coming in on a high. Jesus had, again, been on a roll coming into Jerusalem. Either, number one, he healed two blind men. Now, I come back to this again because I think that we often underappreciate the healings of Jesus and exactly what happens. And in part, that's because uh, the description we get from Scripture is not much of a description. And if anything, it's kind of like an underplaying of what's actually happened. And most of the time, it's described as someone immediately receiving something, right? So what do we miss in that? Well, we're not taking into account in someone immediately receiving their sight what had to happen in order for them to see again. So nerves had to regrow. Eyeballs had to reshape and form. Muscles that had never been used or hadn't been used for years had to regrow and be strong enough. These people probably hadn't opened their eyes in who knows how long. And it's amazing to consider these things. These things that physically had to change in a moment in order for a blind person to open up their eyes and see. It's a big deal. You know, when Jesus heals someone with a withered hand, it means their hand is like shrunken and and they can't open it. And so what has to happen in order for them to open up a withered hand? Muscles have to regrow. Bones have to change. Ligaments have to, to regrow and change. The whole hand has to change right in front of their eyes. It is miraculous and unexplainable. These things that Jesus done has done. Now, in the John account where he raised Lazarus from the dead, I mean, come on. Right? Needs no explanation. He raised someone from the dead. Someone who was stinky dead. Raised that person up. So the disciples would have been excited about returning to the city. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, either James or John or their mother asked as they're approaching the city that one sit on the right and one sit on the left in the kingdom of heaven. So what does this tell us a little bit about their mindset? Bro, we're going to Jerusalem. You know what this means, right? It's time. It's time. Cool. Who do you think Jesus is going to put in important positions? I don't know. Let's find out so they approached jesus so we know that they don't quite get exactly what's going on but they were also expecting the kingdom to be established soon and each of them had to have wanted their part in the kingdom that jesus was establishing and perhaps they thought that this trip would be the occasion when jesus finally made a move against the establishment And then there's this other factor that being a disciple of Jesus kind of makes you a rock star, right? If people want to get to Jesus, who do they have to go through? Other people whose cousin knows someone who's a friend with your wife's sister's nephew, right? Like there is... You are part of what helps people get to Jesus, and there's self-importance that comes with being one of the chosen. So they're pretty hyped up about this whole thing. Now, what about the people, the other people that are around and that are participating in this celebration? Well, first, we know that there are were people from all different backgrounds there to greet Jesus. People, again, were traveling for Passover. There would have been people from different areas with different levels of experience or knowledge with Jesus. Some of them might have been healed by Jesus. Some of them might have only heard second or third hand about things that Jesus had done Some may have been traveling with him for a long while or maybe just came alongside him in the past weeks. Some might have just been on the road with his group, hearing about who he is and what he has done. And, and there had to be some residents from Jerusalem who had heard several rumors and maybe never encountered Jesus on their own, and, and they wanted to see from themselves. So what we know is there is a mixed bag of true believers, of the curious, and of those who were very skeptical, if not antagonistic toward Jesus. But whoever they were or whoever, wherever they came from, the general reaction to Jesus was overwhelmingly positive. It was, in fact, a celebration. And and although we have no sense for how many were standing outside the crowd wondering all of this, the definite tone of this is, is a declaration, is a celebration of who Jesus is. John gives us a little bit of a hint into some of these dynamics. So from John chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Which tells us this. Curiosity was a major factor in people wanting to experience Jesus that week. It was a major factor. And in Matthew's account, The people who see them, there's the question of who is this. And according to Matthew, people were saying it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. But the important thing to note is that this was, in fact, a scene drawing a lot of people. Now lastly, let's look at the religious leaders. What were they thinking as Jesus is coming in surrounded by this enthusiastic crowd of people? You don't have to look too closely to see that the Jewish leaders were pretty riled up about Jesus. It's talked about fairly often throughout the Gospels. Now, here's something that we need to note: In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is the first time that Jesus has come to Jerusalem during his adult ministry, meaning they have not described another trip into Jerusalem during the three years of Jesus' ministry. Therefore, in their book, everything is building up to this moment. Now, in the book of John, Jesus had been to Jerusalem at least four times. So people in Jerusalem would have known about him versus people who stayed in Jerusalem all this time not really having any sense for who Jesus is. Now, which is more likely? Well, there were three pilgrimage, pilgrimages every year to Jerusalem that every Jew would take Was Jesus Jewish? Yes. Did he observe Jewish festivals? Yes. So what is more likely? It's more likely that he had been to Jerusalem at some point during his ministry. But what is clear is whatever trips he's had to Jerusalem before are different than this one. This one is important. This one is significant because of what is going to happen. Either way, the religious leaders in Jerusalem know enough about Jesus to know that he was a threat. So let's open up our Bibles again to John chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 45 through 57. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did after the healing of Lazarus believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And can we just side note that? He's not wrong. He's not wrong. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to... To a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, "What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all?" But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it, so that they might arrest him. Now. In this passage, the religious leaders, specifically, they named them, and this is important, Uh, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the Sanhedrin recognized that Jesus was a threat that they had to deal with. Uh, Now, why does this particular group matter? Well, it's a blending of groups. So, for the most part, when Jesus was outside of Jerusalem, the people he would have been dealing with the most were the Pharisees because they were the local religious teachers. They were experts on the law, and within each uh, city or town, they would um, practice the law, they would teach, uh, they would even hold some worship services there at their synagogues. Now, the chief priests are obviously in charge of the temple. They are the chief priests. And the Sanhedrin would have been the religious governing board for that area. And so all these groups are joined together to have this special meeting. And what do they decide? We, we have to do something about this. Now, that note about Caiaphas is interesting. It really is. Um, and, and, and I don't know quite what to think about it. But Caiaphas says, so, so people are worried Right? And, and the big concern is that if he comes in and things get too rowdy, Rome will notice and then Roman will squash them or Rome will squash them. And that's a legitimate concern, just to throw that out there. But then Caiaphas speaks up and he says, Look, it's better for one to die for everyone. And then it mentions that prophecy that Jesus was going to die to do what? to unite not just those in Jerusalem but those who are scattered out all over the place so does Caiaphas know what's going on with Jesus we don't don't know We, we can guess probably not but he is someone who is seeing something larger Something bigger that is going on. They knew long before Jesus entered Jerusalem that he had to be dealt with. And as the week goes on, things got worse. Let's look at Luke chapter 19, verses 47 through 48. This is after Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Okay, so there's a second problem. Everybody loves him. So how can we arrest him and then kill him if everybody loves him? Ultimately, this fear of upsetting people would not keep them from acting. And somehow, by the time we get to the end of the week, the public sentiment about him has changed. Let's look at Jesus. There are some words I could use to describe Jesus here. The word determined comes to mind. He knew what lay ahead of him. It was time to make his stand. And in some ways, this triumphal entry is a moment where he says, Don't you know who I am yet? Listen to these words. And when the Pharisees say, you need to stop your followers from rejoicing and saying these things, what does Jesus say? If they stop, the rocks will cry out. He's determined. This is happening, people. This is happening, and it's going to happen now. Number two, we know that Jesus is emotional. This is the start of a long, long 30 years. The, the start of of the end of everything he had been been, been working for. It, it's the start of that plan that throughout his whole life he's those 30 years he's been working toward, and now here he is. And when he comes into the city, what is he thinking? Well, John or uh, Luke kind of tells us what he was thinking. Again, from uh, chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, "'If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, "'but now it is hidden from your eyes. "'The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you "'and encircle you and hem you in on every side. "'They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls.' They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, it's easy to get lost in the words that feel like a threat. Do you know why? Because they are threatening words. They are. But we can't overlook Jesus' emotion. What is the emotion that he's feeling? It's sadness. It's brokenheartedness. Because this entry into Jerusalem could have been something completely different if they had just recognized who he is and what God wanted to do. But it's not. It's not that something different. It is this moment, this week, where Jesus will spar and fight where people he loves will abandon him. How heartbreaking it must have been to know that he could not love them like his heart and God's heart desired because they wouldn't receive it. How terrible of a feeling is that? Having so much to give to people whose arms are crossed. And lastly, he was ready for whatever was to come. I mean, you know, Jesus was never a wallflower. But he was ready. He was ready to call out all the places of sin and rebellion. He was ready to point fingers and tell people they were wrong. So with this event, the last week of Jesus' life before his death begins. It's a busy week of highs and lows. Lots of lows. But my, how the world changes from one Sunday to the next. The most difficult thing for me to wrap my head around in this moment is that Jesus started this week knowing that by the end of the day on Friday, he would be dead. And that makes me wonder at the love that Jesus has for us. Every angry angry word he absorbed, every closed off heart, every person filled with hate, all of the worst that humanity had to offer, he received that week. And you know what's funny? He died for all of those people who said those angry words, who gave him those dirty looks who denied the very foundation of who he is. He went to the cross that they provided for him, that they might have life. I wonder at that. That their anger might turn to peace. That their heart might be open to the kingdom that God wanted to establish. That the hate that dominated their lives would turn to love. And that the love of God would overwhelm the worst of what we have to offer. Praise God that Jesus went willingly for us. Because Jesus receives the same thing from us in our struggle to follow and honor him as the one who was sent to redeem. But we see so strongly in this moment and in this week that Jesus knew how it was going to go and how he was going to be treated. And he marched in, ready to go.